Hello, and welcome to another episode of Another World Audiobooks, carrying on with yet another intense Sherlock Holmes mystery. Like I said, if you enjoy Sherlock Holmes audiobooks and you're enjoying this one so far, there are two other Sherlock books in the backlist of episodes here on Another World. Or if you'd be interested in supporting the podcast, uh, you could consider buying them. Uh, I have the, the links to go ahead and just buy it on a non-subscription audiobook site, and if you've ever messed with Audible, you know how <laughs> trying that can be. So this is a non-subscription, so you just buy and you can just get the MP3. Anyway, the royalties from that go to helping me provide more content for you guys. So if you could do that, that would be amazing. And uh, once this book is finished, it will also be up there for sale. So if you want to skip the ads and skip the intros and outros and having to wait, then uh, yeah, that'll be up there as well. So now without further ado, I give you the next two chapters of Sign of the Four. Chapter 7. The Episode of the Barrel. The police had brought a cab with them, and in this I escorted Miss Morstan back to her home. After the angelic fashion of women, she had borne trouble with a calm face as long as there was someone weaker than herself to support, and I had found her bright and placid by the side of the frightened housekeeper. In the cab, however, she first turned faint and then burst into a passion of weeping. So sorely had she been tried by the adventures of the night. She has told me since that she thought me cold and distant upon that journey. She little guessed the struggle within my breast, or the effort of self-restraint which held me back. My sympathies and my love went out to her, even as my hand had in the garden. I felt that years of conventionalities of life could not teach me to know her sweet, brave nature as had this one day of strange experiences. Yet there were two thoughts which sealed the words of affection upon my lips. She was weak and helpless, shaken in mind and nerve. It was to take her at a disadvantage to obtrude love upon her at such a time. Worse still, she was rich. If Holmes's researches were successful, she would be an heiress. Was it fair, was it honourable, that a half-paced surgeon should take such advantage of an intimacy which chance had brought about? Might she not look upon me as a mere vulgar fortune-seeker? I could not bear to risk that such a thought should cross her mind. This agra-treasure intervened like an impassable barrier between us. It was nearly two o'clock when we reached Mrs. Cecil Forrester's. The servants had retired two hours ago, but Mrs. Foster had been so interested by the strange message which Miss Morstan had received that she had sat up in the hope of her return. She opened the door herself, a middle-aged, graceful woman, and it gave me joy to see how tenderly her arm stole around the other's waist, and how motherly was the voice in which she greeted her. She was clearly no mere paid dependent, but an honoured friend. I was introduced, and Mrs. Forrester earnestly begged me to step in and tell her our adventures. I explained, however, the importance of my errand, and promised faithfully to call and report any progress which we might make in the case. As we drove away, I stole a glance back, and I still seemed to see that little group on the step, the two graceful clinging figures, the half-open door, the whole light shining through stained glass, the barometer and the bright stairons. It was soothing to catch even that passing glimpse of a tranquil English home in the midst of the wild, dark business which had absorbed us. And the more I thought of what had happened, the wilder and darker it grew. I reviewed the whole extraordinary sequence of events as I rattled on through the silent, gaslit streets. There was the original problem. That, at least, was pretty clear now. The death of Captain Morstan, the sending of the pearls, the advertisement, the letter. We had had light upon all those events. They had only led us, however, to a deeper and far more tragic mystery. The Indian treasure, the curious plan found among Morstan's baggage, the strange scene of Major Sholto's death, the rediscovery of the treasure immediately followed by the murder of the discoverer, the very singular accompaniments to the crime, the footsteps, the remarkable weapons, the words upon the card, corresponding with those upon Captain Morstan's chart. 
Here indeed was a labyrinth, in which a man less singularly endowed than my fellow lodger might well despair of ever finding the clue. Hinchin Lane was a row of shabby two-storied brick houses in the lower quarter of Lambeth. I had to knock for some time at number three before I could make my impression. At last, however, there was a glint of candle behind the blind, and a face looked out at the upper window. "'Go on, you drunken vagabond!' said the face. If you kick up any more row, I'll open the kennels and let out forty-three dogs upon you. If you'll just let out one, it's just what I've come for, said I. Go on, yelled the voice. So help me gracious, I have a wiper in the bag, and I'll drop it on your head if you don't hook it. But I want a dog, I cried. I won't be argued with, shouted Mr. Sherman. Now stand clear, for when I say three, down goes the wiper. Mr. Sherlock Holmes... I began, but the words had a most magical effect, for the window instantly slammed down, and within a minute the door was unbarred and open. Mr. Sherman was a lanky, lean old man with stooped shoulders, a stringy neck, and blue-tinted glasses. "'A friend of Mr. Sherlock is always welcome,' said he. "'Step in, sir, and keep clear the badger, for he bites. Oh, naughty, naughty, would you take a nip at the gentleman?' This to a stoat which thrust its wicked head and red eyes between the bars of its cage. Don't mind that, sir. It's only a slow worm. It ain't got no fangs. So I give it the run of the room, for it keeps the beetles down. You must not mind me being a little short with you at first, for I'm guided at by the children, and there's many a one just come down this lane to knock me up. What was it that Mr. Sherlock Holmes wanted, sir? He wanted a dog of yours. Ah, that would be Toby. Yes, Toby was the name. Toby lives at number seven on the left here. He slowly moved forward with his candle among the queer animal family which he had gathered round him. In the uncertain, shadowy light, I could see dimly that there were glancing, glimmering eyes peeping down at us from every cranny and corner. Even the rafters above our heads were lined by solemn fowls, who lazily shifted their weight from one leg to the other as our voices disturbed their slumbers. Toby proved to be an ugly, long-haired, lop-eared creature, half spaniel and half lurcher, brown and white in colour, with a very clumsy, waddling gait. It accepted, after some hesitation, a lump of sugar, which the old naturalist handed to me, and having thus sealed an alliance, it followed me to the cab, and made no difficulties about accompanying me. It had just struck three at the palace clock, when I found myself back once more at Pondicherry Lodge. The ex-prize fighter, McMurdo, had, I found, been arrested as an accessory, and both he and Mr. Shelter had been marched off to the station. Two constables guarded the narrow gate, but they allowed me to pass with a dog on my mentioning the detective's name. Holmes was standing on the doorstep, with his hands in his pockets smoking his pipe. "'Ah, you have him there,' said he. "'Good dog, then. Anthony Jones is gone. We have had an immense display of energy since you left. He has arrested not only friend Thaddeus, but the gatekeeper, the housekeeper, and the Indian servant. We have the place to ourselves, but for a sergeant upstairs. Leave the dog here and come up.' We tied Toby to the hall table and reascended the stairs. The room was as he had left it, save that a sheet had been draped over the central figure. A weary-looking police sergeant reclined in the corner. "'Lend me your bullseye, sergeant,' said my companion. "'Now, tie this bit of card round your neck, so as to hang it in front of me. Thank you. Now I must kick off my boots and stockings. Just you carry them down with you, Watson. I'm going to do a little climbing, and dip my handkerchief into the creosote. That will do. Now, come up into the garret with me for a moment.' We clambered up through the hole. Holmes turned his light once more upon the footsteps in the dust. "'I wish you to particularly notice these footmarks,' he said. "'Do you observe anything noteworthy about them?' 
They belong, I said, to a child or a small woman. Apart from their size, though, is there nothing else? They appear to be much as other footmarks. Not at all. Look here. This is the print of a right foot in the dust. Now I make one with my naked foot beside it. What is the chief difference? Your toes are all cramped together. The other print has each toe distinctly divided. Quite so. That is the point. Bear that in mind. Now, would you kindly step over to the flap window and smell the edge of the woodwork? I shall stay here, as I have this handkerchief in my hand. I did as he directed, and was instantly conscious of a strong, tarry smell. That is where he put his foot in getting out. If you can trace him, I should think that Toby will have no difficulty. Now, run downstairs, loose the dog, and look out for Blondin. By the time I had got out into the grounds, Sherlock Holmes was on the roof, and I could see him like an enormous glowworm crawling very slowly along the ridge. I lost sight of him behind a stack of chimneys, but he presently reappeared, and then vanished once more upon the opposite side. When I made my way round there, I found him seated at one of the corner eaves. "'That you, Watson?' he cried. "'Yes.' "'This is the place. What is that black thing down there?' "'A water barrel.' "'Top on it?' "'Yes.' No sign of a ladder? No. Confound the fellow. It's a most breakneck place. I ought to be able to come down where he could climb up. The water pipe feels pretty firm. Here goes anyhow. There was a scuffling of feet, and the lantern began to come steadily down the side of the wall. Then, with a light spring, he came onto the barrel, and from there to the earth. It was easy to follow him, he said, drawing on his stockings and boots. Tiles were loosened the whole way along, and in his hurry he had dropped this— it confirms my diagnosis, as you doctors express it. The object which he held up to me was a small pocket or pouch woven out of coloured grasses and with a few tawdry beads strung round it. In shape and size, it was not unlike a cigarette case. Inside were half a dozen spines of dark wood, sharp at one end and rounded at the other, like that which had struck Bartholomew Shelto. They are hellish things, said he. Look out that you don't prick yourself. I'm delighted to have them, for the chances are they are all he has. There is the less fear of you or me finding one in our skin before long. I would sooner face a martini bullet myself. Are you game for a six-mile trudge, Watson? Certainly, I answered. Your leg will stand it? Oh, yes. Here you are, doggy. Good old Toby. Smell it, Toby. Smell it. He pushed the creosote handkerchief under the dog's nose, while the creature stood with its fluffy legs separated and with the most comical cock to its head, like a connoisseur sniffing the bouquet of a famous vintage. Holmes then threw the handkerchief to a distance, fastened a stout cord to the mongrel's collar, and led him to the foot of the water-barrel. The creature instantly broke into a succession of high, tremulous yelps, and, with his nose on the ground and his tail in the air, patted off upon the trail at a pace which strained his leash and kept us at the top of our speed. The east had been gradually whitening, and we could now see some distance in the cold grey light. The square, massive house with its black, empty windows and high, bare walls towered up, sad and forlorn, behind us. Our course led right across the grounds, in and out among the trenches and pits with which they had been scarred and intersected. The whole place, with its scarred dirt heaps and ill-grown shrubs, had a blighted, ill-omened look, which harmonized with the black tragedy which hung over it. On reaching the boundary wall, Toby ran along, whining eagerly, underneath its shadow, and stopped finally in a corner screen by a young beach. Where the two walls joined, several bricks had been loosened, and the crevices left were worn down and rounded upon the lower side, as though they had frequently been used as a ladder. 
Holmes clambered up, and taking the dog from me, he dropped it over upon the other side. There's the print of the wooden leg's hand, he remarked as I mounted up beside him. You see the slight smudge of blood upon the white plaster. What a lucky thing it is we have had no heavy rain since yesterday. The scent will lie upon the road in spite of their eight-and-twenty-hour start. I confess that I had my doubts myself when I reflected upon the great traffic which had passed along the London road in the interval. My fears were soon appeased, however. Toby never hesitated or swerved, but waddled on in his peculiar rolling fashion. Clearly, the pungent smell of the creosote rose high above all other contending scents. Do not imagine, said Holmes, that I depend for my success in this case upon the mere chance of one of these fellows having put his foot in the chemical. I have knowledge now which would enable me to trace them in many different ways. This, however, is the readiest, and, since fortune has put it into our hands, I should be culpable if I neglected it. It has, however, prevented the case from becoming the pretty little intellectual problem which it at one time promised to be. There might have been some credit to be gained out of it, but for this too palpable clue. There is credit and to spare, said I. I assure you, Holmes, that I marvel at the means by which you obtain your results in this case even more than I did in the Jefferson Hope murder. The thing seems to me to be deeper and more inexplicable. How, for example, could you describe with such confidence the wooden-legged man? <sighs> My dear boy, it is simplicity itself. I don't wish to be theatrical. It is all patent and above board. Two officers who are in command of a convict guard learn an important secret as to buried treasure. A map is drawn for them by an Englishman named Jonathan Small. You remember that we saw his name upon the chart in Captain Morstan's possession. He had signed it in behalf of himself and his associates. The Sign of the Fool, as he somewhat dramatically called it. Aided by this chart, the officers, or one of them, gets the treasure and brings it to England, leaving, we will suppose, some condition under which he received it unfulfilled. Now then, why did not Jonathan Small get the treasure himself? The answer is obvious. The chart is dated at a time when Morstan was brought into close association with convicts. Jonathan Small did not get the treasure because he and his associates were themselves convicts and could not get away. But that is mere speculation, said I. It is more than that. It is the only hypothesis which covers the facts. Let us see how it fits in with the sequel. Major Shelto remains at peace for some years, happy in his possession of his treasure. Then he receives a letter from India, which gives him great fright. What was that? A letter to say that the men whom he had wronged had been set free. Or had escaped. That is much more likely, for he would have known what their term of imprisonment was. It would not have been a surprise to him. What does he do then? He guards himself against a wooden-legged man, a white man, mark you, for he mistakes a white tradesman for him and actually fires a pistol at him. Now, only one white man's name is on the chart. The other are Hindus or Mohammedans. There is no other white man. Therefore, we may say with confidence that the wooden-legged man is identical with Jonathan Small. Does the reasoning strike you as being faulty? No, it is clear and concise. Well now, let us put ourselves in the place of Jonathan Small. Let us look at it from his point of view. He comes to England with the double idea of regaining what he would consider to be his rights, and of having his revenge upon the man who had wronged him. He found out where Sholto lived, and very possibly he established communication with someone inside the house. There is this butler, Lal Rau, whom we have not seen. Mrs. Burnstone gives him far from a good character. Small could not find out, however, where the treasure was hid, for no one ever knew, save the Major and one faithful servant who had died. 
Suddenly, Small learns that the Major is on his deathbed. In a frenzy, lest the secret of the treasure die with him, he runs the gauntlet of the guards, makes his way to the dying man's window, and is only deterred from entering by the presence of his two sons. Mad with hate, however, against the dead man, he enters the room that night, searches his private papers in the hope of discovering some memorandum relating to the treasure, and finally leaves a memento of his visit in the short inscription upon the card. He had doubtless planned beforehand that should he slay the Major, he would leave some such record upon the body as a sign that it was not a common murder, but from the point of view of the four associates, something in the nature of an act of justice. Whimsical and bizarre conceits of this kind are common enough in the annals of crime, and usually afford valuable indication as to the criminal. Do you follow all this? Very clearly. Now, what could Jonathan Small do? He could only continue to keep a secret watch upon the efforts made to find the treasure. Possibly, he leaves England, and only comes back at intervals. Then comes the discovery of the garret, and he is instantly informed of it. We again trace the presence of some confederate in the household. Jonathan, with his wooden leg, is utterly unable to reach the lofty room of Bartholomew Sholto. He takes with him, however, a rather curious associate, who gets over this difficulty but dips his naked foot into creosote, whence comes Toby and a six-mile limp for a half-pay officer with a damaged tender Achilles. But it was the associate and not Jonathan who committed the crime. Quite so, and rather to Jonathan's disgust, to judge by the way he stamped about when he got into the room. He bore no grudge against Bartholomew Sholto, and would have preferred if he could have been simply bound and gagged. He did not wish to put his head in a halter. There was no help for it, however. The savage instincts of his companion had broken out, and the poison had done its work. So, Jonathan Small left his record, lowered the treasure box to the ground, and followed it himself. That was the train of events as far as I can decipher them. Of course, as to his personal appearance, he must be middle-aged, and must be sunburned, after serving his time in such an oven as the Andaman's. His height is readily calculated from the length of his stride, and we know that he was bearded. His hairiness was the one point which impressed itself upon Thaddeus Shelter when he saw him at the window. I don't know if there is anything else. The associate? Ah, well, there is no great mystery in that. But you will know all about that soon enough. How sweet the morning air is. See how that one little cloud floats like a pink feather from some gigantic flamingo. Now the red rim of the sun pushes itself over the London cloud bank. It shines on a good many folk, but on none, I dare bet, who are on a stranger errand than you and I. How small we feel in our petty ambitions and strivings in the presence of the great elemental forces of nature. Are you well up in your Jean-Paul? Fairly so. I work back to him through Carlisle. That was like following the brook to the parent lake. He makes one curious but profound remark. It is that the chief proof of man's real greatness lies in his perception of his own smallness. It argues, you see, a power of comparison and appreciation which is in itself a proof of nobility. There is much food for thought in Richter. You have not a pistol, have you? I have my stick. It is just possible that we may need something of the sort if we get into their lair. Jonathan, I shall leave to you, but if the other turns nasty, I shall shoot him dead. He took out his revolver as he spoke, and, having loaded two of the chambers, he put it back into the right-hand pocket of his jacket. We had, during this time, been following the guidance of Toby, down the half-rural, villa-lined road which leads to the metropolis. Now, however, we were beginning to come among continuous streets, where laborers and dockmen were already astir, and slatternly women were taking down shutters and brushing doorsteps. At the square-topped corner public houses, business was just beginning, and rough-looking men were emerging, rubbing their sleeves across their beards after their morning wet. Strange dogs sauntered up and stared wonderingly at us as we passed, 
but our inimitable Toby looked neither to the right nor to the left, but trotted onwards with his nose to the ground and an occasional eager whine which spoke of a hot scent. We had traversed Stratham, Brixton, Camberwell, and now found ourselves in Kennington Lane, having borne away through the side streets to the east of the Oval. The men whom we pursued seemed to have taken a curiously zigzag road, with the idea probably of escaping observation. They had never kept to the main road if a parallel side street would serve their turn, at the foot of Kennington Lane, they had edged away to the left through Bond Street and Mile Street. Where the latter street turns into Knight's Place, Toby ceased to advance, but began to run backwards and forwards, with one ear cocked and the other drooping, the very picture of canine indecision. Then he waddled round in circles, looking up to us from time to time, as if to ask for sympathy in his embarrassment. "'What the deuce is the matter with the dog?' growled Holmes. "'They surely would not take a cab or go off in a balloon.' "'Perhaps they stood here for some time.' I suggested. Ah, it's all right, he's off again, said my companion in a tone of relief. He was indeed off, for after sniffing round again, he suddenly made up his mind and darted away with an energy and determination such as he had not yet shown. The scent appeared to be much hotter than before, for he had not even put his nose on the ground, but tugged on his leash and tried to break into a run. I could see by the gleam in Holmes' eyes that he thought we were nearing the end of our journey. Our course now ran down Nine Elms, until we came to Broderick and Nelson's large timber yard, just past the White Eagle Tavern. Here the dog, frantic with excitement, turned down through the side gate into the enclosure, where the sawyers were already at work. On the dog raced through sawdust and shavings, down an alley, round a passage, between two woodpiles, and finally, with a triumphant yelp, sprang upon a large barrel, which still stood upon the hand trolley on which it had been brought. With lolling tongue and blinking eyes, Toby stood upon the cask, looking from one to the other of us for some sign of appreciation. The staves of the barrel and wheels of the trolley were smeared with a dark liquid, and the whole air was heavy with the smell of creosote. Sherlock Holmes and I looked blankly at each other, and then burst simultaneously into an uncontrollable fit of laughter. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 8. The Baker Street Irregulars "'What now?' I asked. "'Toby has lost his character for infallibility.' "'He acted according to his lights,' said Holmes, lifting him down from the barrel and walking him out of the timber yard. "'If you consider how much creosote is carted about London in one day, it is no great wonder that our trail should have been crossed. It is much used now, especially in the seasoning of wood. Poor Toby is not to blame.' "'We must get on the main scent again, I suppose.' Yes, and fortunately we have no distance to go. Evidently what puzzled the dog at the corner of Knight's Place was that there are two different trails running in opposite directions. We took the wrong one. It only remains to follow the other. 
There was no difficulty about this. On leading Toby to the place where he had committed his fault, he cast about in a wide circle and finally dashed off in a fresh direction. We must take care that he does not now bring us to the place where the creosol barrel came from, I observed. I thought of that, but you notice that he keeps on the pavement, where the barrel passed down the roadway. No, we are on the true scent now. It tended towards the riverside, running through Belmont Place and Prince's Street. At the end of Broad Street, it ran right down to the water's edge, where there was a small wooden wharf. Toby led us to the very edge of this, and there stood whining, looking out on the dark current beyond. We are out of luck, said Holmes. They have taken to a boat here. Several small punts and skiffs were lying about in the water and on the edge of the wharf. We took Toby round to each in turn, but though he sniffed earnestly, he made no sign. Close to the rude landing stage was a small brick house with a wooden placard slung out through the second window. Mordecai Smith was printed across it in large letters, and underneath, boats to hire by the hour or day. A second inscription above the door informed us that a steam launch was kept, a statement which was confirmed by a great pile of coke upon the jetty. Sherlock Holmes looked slowly round, and his face assumed an ominous expression. "'This looks bad,' said he. "'These fellows are sharper than I expected.' They seem to have covered their tracks. There has, I fear, been preconcerted management here. He was approaching the door of the house when it opened, and a little curly-headed lad of six came running out, followed by a stoutish, red-faced woman with a large sponge in her hand. "'You come back and be washed, Jack!' she shouted. "'Come back, you young imp, for if your father comes home and finds you like that, he'll let us hear of it!' "'Dear little chap,' said Holmes strategically. "'What a rosy-cheeked young rascal!' Now, Jack, is there anything you would like? The youth pondered for a moment. I'd like a shilling, said he. Nothing you would like better. I'd like two shilling better, the prodigy answered after some thought. Here you are, then. Catch. A fine child, Mrs. Smith. Lord bless you, sir, he is that and forward. He gets almost too much for me to manage, especially when my man is away days at a time. "'Away, is he?' said Holmes in a disappointed voice. "'I am sorry for that, for I wanted to speak to Mr. Smith.' "'He's been away since yesterday morning, sir, and truth to tell, I'm beginning to feel frightened about him. But if it was about a boat, sir, maybe I could serve as well.' "'I wanted to hire his steam launch.' "'Why, bless you, sir, it is in the steam launch that he has gone. That's what puzzles me, for I know there ain't coals in her that would take her about to Woolwich and back. If he'd been away in the barge, I'd have thought nothing.' For many a time a job has taken him as far as Gravesend, and then if there was much doing there, he might have stayed over. But what good is a steam launch without coals? He might have bought some at a wharf down the river. He might, sir, but it weren't his way. Many a time I've heard him call out the prices they charge for a few odd bags. Besides, I don't like the wooden-legged man with his ugly face and outlandish talk. What did he want always knocking about here for? A wooden-legged man, said Holmes with bland surprise. "'Yes, sir, a brown monkey-faced chap was called more than once for my old man. "'It was him that roused him up yesternight, and, what's more, my man knew he was coming, "'for he had the steam up in the launch. "'I tell you straight, sir, I don't feel easy in my mind about it.' "'But, my dear Mrs. Smith,' said Helm, shrugging his shoulders, "'you are frightening yourself about nothing. "'How could you possibly tell that it was a wooden-legged man who came in the night? "'I don't quite understand how you can be so sure.' "'His voice, sir, I knew his voice.' What is kind of thick and foggy? He tapped on the window. About three it would be. Show a leg, matey, says he. Time to turn out guard. 
My old man woke up Jim, that's my eldest, and away they went, without so much as a word to me. I could hear the wooden leg clacking on the stones. And was this wooden leg man alone? Couldn't say, I'm sure, sir. I didn't hear no one else. I'm sorry, Mrs. Smith, for I wanted a steam launch, and I've heard good reports of the... Let me see, what is her name? The Aurora, sir. Ah, she's not that green launch with a yellow line, very broad in the beam? No, indeed. She's as trim a little thing as any on the river. She's been fresh-painted, black with two red streaks. Thanks. I hope that you will hear soon from Mr. Smith. I'm going down the river, and if I should see anything of the Aurora, I shall let him know that you are uneasy. A black funnel, you say? No, sir. Black with a white band. Ah, of course. It was the size which were black. Good morning, Mrs. Smith. There is a boatman here with a wherry, Watson. We shall take it and cross the river. The main thing with people of that sort, said Holmes as we sat in the sheets of the wherry, is never to let them think that their information can be of the slightest importance to you. If you do, they will instantly shut up like an oyster. If you listen to them under protest, as it were, you are very likely to get what you want. Our course now seems pretty clear, said I. What would you do, then? I would engage a launch and go down the river on the track of the Aurora. My dear fellow, it would be a colossal task. She may have touched at any wharf on either side of the stream between here and Greenwich. Below the bridge there is a perfect labyrinth of landing places for miles. It would take you days and days to exhaust them if you set about it alone. Employ the police, then? No, I shall probably call Anthony Jones in at the last moment. He is not a bad fellow, and I should not like to do anything that would injure him professionally. But I have a fancy for working it out myself, now that we've gone so far. Could we advertise, then, asking for information from Warfingers? Worse and worse. Our men would know that the chase was hot at their heels, and they would be off out of the country. As it is, they are likely enough to leave, but as long as they think they are perfectly safe, they will be in no hurry. Jones' energy will be of use to us there, for his view of the case is sure to push itself into the daily press, and runaways will think that everyone is off on the wrong scent. What are we to do, then? I asked, as we landed near Millbank Penitentiary. Take this hansom, drive home, have some breakfast, and get an hour's sleep. It is quite on the cars that we may be afoot tonight again. Stop at a telegraph office, cabby. We will keep Toby, for he may be of use to us yet. We pulled up at the Great Peter Street Post Office, and home dispatched his wire. Whom do you think that is to? He asked as we resumed our journey. I'm sure I don't know. You remember the Baker Street Division of the Detective Police Force whom I employed in the Jefferson Hope case? Well, said I, laughing, this is just the case where they might be invaluable. If they fail, I have other resources, but I shall try them first. The wire was to my dirty little Lieutenant Wiggins, and I expect that he and his gang will be with us before we have finished our breakfast. It was between eight and nine o'clock now, and I was conscious of a strong reaction after the successive excitements of the night. I was limp and weary, befogged in mind and fatigued in body. I had not the professional enthusiasm which carried my companion on, nor could I look at the matter as a mere abstract intellectual problem. As far as the death of Bartholomew Shelter went, I had heard little good of him, and could feel no intense antipathy to his murderers. The treasure, however, was a different matter. That, or part of it, belonged rightfully to Miss Morstan. While there was a chance of recovering it, I was ready to devote my life to the one object— True, if it were found, it would probably put her forever beyond my reach, yet it would be a petty and selfish love which would be influenced by such a thought as that. 
If Holmes could work to find the criminals, I had a tenfold stronger reason to urge me on to find the treasure. A bath at Baker Street and a complete change freshened me up wonderfully. When I came down to our room, I found the breakfast laid and Holmes pouring out the coffee. Here it is, said he, laughing and pointing to an open newspaper. The energetic Jones and the ubiquitous reporter have fixed it up between them. But you have had enough of the case. But you have ham and eggs first. I took the paper from him and read the short notice, which was headed Mysterious Business at Upper Norwood. About twelve o'clock last night, said the standard, Mr. Bartholomew Shilto of Pondicherry Lodge, Upper Norwood, was found dead in his room under circumstances which point to foul play. As far as we can learn, no actual traces of violence were found upon Mr. Shilto's person, but a valuable collection of Indian gems, which the deceased gentleman had inherited from his father, had been carried off. The discovery was first made by Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, who had called at the house with Mr. Thaddeus Shilto, brother of the deceased. By a singular piece of good fortune, Mr. Athenley Jones, the well-known member of the detective police force, happened to be at Norwood Police Station, and was on the ground within half an hour of the first alarm. His trained and experienced faculties were at once directed towards the detection of the criminals, with the gratifying result that the brother, Thaddeus Shelto, had already been arrested, together with a housekeeper, Mrs. Burnstone, an Indian butler named Lao Rao, and a porter or gatekeeper named McMurdo. It was quite certain that the thief or thieves were well acquainted with the house, for Mr. Jones's well-known technical knowledge and his powers of minute observation have enabled him to prove conclusively that the miscreants could not have entered by the door or by the window, but must have made their way across the roof of the building, and so through a trap-door into a room which communicated with that in which the body was found. This fact, which has been clearly made out, proves conclusively that it was no mere haphazard burglary. The prompt and energetic action of the officers of the law shows the great advantage of the presence on such occasions of a single vigorous and masterful mind. We cannot but think that it supplies an argument to those who would wish to see our detectives more decentralized, and so brought into closer and more effective touch with the cases which it is their duty to investigate. Isn't it gorgeous? said Holmes, grinning over his coffee cup. What do you think of it? I think that we have had a close shave ourselves of being arrested for the crime. So do I. I wouldn't answer for our safety now if he should happen to have another attack of his energy. At this moment there was a loud ring at the bell, and I could hear Mrs. Hanson, our landlady, raising her voice in a wail of expostulation and dismay. By heaven, Holmes, I said, half rising. I do believe they are really after us. No, it is not quite so bad as that. It is the unofficial force, the Baker Street Irregulars. As he spoke, there came a swift pattering of naked feet upon the stairs, a clatter of high voices, and in rushed a dozen dirty and ragged little street Arabs. There was some show of discipline among them, despite their tumultuous entry, for they instantly drew up in a line, and stood facing us with expectant faces. One of their number, taller and older than the others, stood forward with an air of lounging superiority, which was very funny in such a disreputable little scarecrow. "'Got your message, sir,' said he, "'and brought em on sharp three bob and a tanner for tickets.' "'Here you are,' said Holmes, producing some silver. "'In future they can report to you, Wiggins, and you to me. "'I cannot have the house invaded in this way. "'However, it is just as well that you should all hear the instructions. "'I want to find the whereabouts of a steam launch called the Aurora, "'owner Mordecai Smith, black with two red streaks, "'funnel black with a white hand.' She is down the river somewhere. I want one boy to be at Mordecai Smith's landing stage opposite Millbank to say if the boat comes back. You must divide it among yourselves and do both banks thoroughly. Let me know the moment you have news. Is that all clear? Yes, Governor, 
said Wiggins. The elders scare the pay, and a guinea to the boy who finds the boat. Here's a day in advance. Now off you go. He handed them a shilling each, and away they buzzed down the stairs, and I saw them a moment later streaming down the street. If the launch is above water, they will find her, said Helms as he rose from the table and lit his pipe. They can go everywhere, see everything, overhear every one. I expect to hear before evening that they have spotted her. In the meanwhile, we can do nothing but await results. We cannot pick up the broken trail until we find either the Aurora or Mr. Mordecai Smith. Toby could eat these scraps, I dare say. Are you going to bed, Holmes? No, I am not tired. I have a curious constitution. I never remember feeling tired by work, though idleness exhausts me completely. I am going to smoke and to think over this queer business to which my fair client has introduced us. If ever man had an easy task, this of ours ought to be. Wooden-legged men are not so common, but the other man must, I should think, be absolutely unique. That other man again? I have no wish to make a mystery of him, to you anyway, but you must have formed your own opinion. Now, do consider the data. Diminutive footmarks, toes never fettered by boots, naked feet, stone-headed wooden mace, great agility, small poison darts. What do you make of all this? A savage, I exclaimed. Perhaps one of those Indians who were the associates of Jonathan Small. Hardly that, said he. When I first saw signs of strange weapons, I was inclined to think so, but the remarkable character of the footmarks caused me to reconsider my views. Some of the inhabitants of the Indian peninsula are small men, but none could have left such marks as that. The Hindu proper has long and thin feet. The sandal-wearing Mohammedan has the great toe well separated from the others, because the thong is commonly placed between them. These little darts, too, could only be shot in one way. They are from a blowpipe. Now then, where are we to find our savage? South America? I hazarded. He stretched his hand up and took down a bulky volume from the shelf. This is the first volume of a gazetteer which is now being published. It may be looked upon as the very latest authority. What have we here? Andamand Islands, situated 340 miles to the south of Sumatra, in the Bay of Bengal. <laughs> What's all this? Moist climate, coral reefs, sharks, Port Blair, convict barracks, Rutland Islands, cottonwoods. Ah, here we are. The aborigines of the Andaman Islands may perhaps claim the distinction of being the smallest race upon this earth, though some anthropologists prefer the Bushmen of Africa, the Digger Indians of the Americas, and the Terra del Fugians. Their average height is rather below four feet, although many full-grown adults may be found who are very much taller than this. They are a fierce, morose, and intractable people, though capable of forming most devoted friendships when their confidence has been gained. Mark that, Watson. Now then, listen to this. They are naturally hideous, having large misshapen heads, small fierce eyes, and distorted features. Their feet and hands, however, are remarkably small. So intractable and fierce are they, that all the efforts of the British officials have failed to win them over in any degree. They have always been a terror to shipwrecked crews, braining the survivors with their stone-headed clumps, or shooting them with their poisoned arrows. These massacres are invariably concluded by a cannibal feast. Nice, amiable people, Watson. If this fellow had been left to his own unaided devices, this affair might have taken an even more ghastly turn. I fancy that, even as it is, Jonathan Small would give a good deal not to have employed him. But how came he to have so singular a companion? Ah, that is more than I can tell. Since, however, we had already determined that Small had come from the Andamans, it was not so very wonderful that this islander should be with him. No doubt we shall know all about it in time. 
Look here, Watson. You look regularly done. Lie down there on the sofa and see if I can put you to sleep. He took up his violin from the corner, and as I stretched myself out, he began to play some low, dreamy, melodious air. His, no doubt, for he had a remarkable gift for improvisation. I had a vague remembrance of his gaunt limbs, his earnest face, and the rise and fall of his bow. Then I seemed to be floated peacefully away upon a soft sea of sound, until I found myself in dreamland, with the sweet face of Mary Morstan looking down upon me. Alright guys, thanks so much for listening, and hope you're enjoying this book so far. Like I said, we're already getting close to the end of this one. It went by really fast compared to Pride and Prejudice, which I just got through recording, which was, wow, that's a book and a half. But, um, yeah, so this one went a lot faster, so I need to know, what book do you guys want to hear next? And if you uh, tweet to me or send me a Facebook message or comment on one of the Facebook posts or Instagram as well um, and let me know what you want to hear next, I would be happy to send you a link for a free audiobook. So there's a, a little incentive for you. Make sure to share the podcast with somebody that you know who'd enjoy a free audiobook. And hope you guys have a great week. We'll talk to you next time.